Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, May 4th, we are studying 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b through 22. With vivid imagery, St. Peter condemns the sins of the false teachers and leaves no doubt about the tragic, deadly effects of their apostasy from the Christian faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's always a blessing to talk about God's Word. As we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews, let's talk a little bit of context. What do we need to know about this epistle, the larger context going into the verses we've got for today? Well, as we look at our text, you've got Peter writing this letter. It's his second letter now. So he wrote to the the churches up in, was it the five different churches in Asia Minor kind of territory there? And that first letter dealt primarily with the theme of suffering and that as Christ suffered for us, when we suffer, we we get to share in that suffering of his. We're pointed to him and, and encouraged by that. And we get to share that hope that's within us. And so Second Peter, in a sense, picks up on a, on a similar theme with the idea of encouraging us to, to live out that life that God has given to us. But we've entered into that point now where Peter is putting forward this, this very strong, as you said, uh, vivid warning against the false teachers among them. And the letter will end by talking about the end of the world drawing near. So, yeah, it's, it's a very short letter, and it has, in that way, uh, quite a range of themes to it. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the previous show, and I made the connection to this idea of suffering. You can tell me what you think. The The suffering definitely comes through in that first epistle. And I think maybe the, the suffering that's in view here, or the connection is that there's a suffering, or as he said in the previous text, there's trials that the Christian undergoes due to the false teaching. So it's it, rather than the suffering from without that was there in first Peter, the persecutions from the world. It seems that the suffering that might be in view here in second Peter has to do with the suffering that the Christian undergoes in the midst of false teaching. And that could take different shapes. I mean, as, as Christians today, knowing that there's false teachers in the church, we do suffer from that. Um, we suffer within our congregations as those false teachings harm us. Um, But in another sense, you'd also have the suffering that would come if those false teachers are actually successful in what they're trying to accomplish and leading us astray. Um, And that's a very different kind of suffering altogether. Hmm. Now, Pastor Andrews, just as before we get started into the text here today, you you said at the beginning, you know, it's always good to talk about God's word. And I agree. The, The word of God that we've got before us today, and we've both referenced this, is very strong, very vivid, very harsh. What do you what do you do with a text like this? This isn't the one that you know. I don't know that I've ever picked a confirmation verse from Second Peter chapter two before. What do you? Although maybe verses you know verse nine is not bad, 
the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But what do you, I mean, how do you approach as a Christian words that are just so strong and harsh, like we're going to to see today? Sometimes our, I think I said it this way, you know, our pious sensibilities might be offended by a text like this. How do we approach a text like this as Christians? Well, I started the way I did specifically because you had already mentioned how difficult this text was. Um, it's still God's word. And so as, as the church, as his people, we humble ourselves and we acknowledge that he is God and we are not. So when, when there are difficulties in scripture, when there are things in scripture that we are uncomfortable with, we read them, we thank the Lord for them anyway. And in terms of a text like this, we pray for these we pray for these people that they don't meet the fate that we're going to talk about today, but that instead that they would repent, uh, they would stop their false teachings and return to the Lord. Yeah, I think that's a helpful way, you know, to pray for those who who do not who are f- caught up in this kind of false teaching. Pray for the false teachers themselves. Pray for those who might be misled. Pray for ourselves that we would not be misled. So a, a helpful way of, of framing this text today. Again, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin here at 10b, right in the middle of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. That is our text for today. Second Peter chapter two, verses 10 B through 22. So, Pastor Andrews, again, a, a very harsh text, very vivid in the imagery that it uses. Peter, he really did this well in the first epistle. He comes back to it again, where he just puts these incredible images in our minds as he describes various things. And here he's talking about false teachers and their false teaching. Lots to, to talk about and discuss. Let's start just where it is. In 10b, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme 
the glorious ones. Bold and willful. We talked a little bit about that previously, that these false teachers, they know what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. And and here, Peter talks about they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. What what does that mean? That's a great question. And, you know, you've got options here. The Greek text on this glorious ones phrase just simply uses the word glory in its plural form. So are we talking about are we talking about God as the glorious one? Um, if, if that's the case, it's easy to see the blasphemy as when they, they share their false teachings, they're sharing false things about God that's blaspheming against him. Um, the world boldly speaks against God. The world willfully rejects his authority as these false teachers are said to be doing in the previous section. And that's an option. Another is angels. Uh, I think that's the way that the study Bible footnotes take it here. Um, And I think most English Bibles probably would agree. And it's in part because angels get mentioned immediately afterwards in verse 11. Angels are God's messengers. So if, if they're blaspheming the messenger, then that would be the idea that they are rejecting the message which is true, right? As false teachers, they are rejecting the message that the Lord has sent. Uh, it could be, in that sense, we would talk about it as a rebellion against God's word, his very authority there. A uh, third way I think you could take it, but I think the rest of the text rules it out, is that glorious ones is a reference to the church militant, to, to the Christians. Uh, persecution of the church is definitely happening at the time. It's the reason Peter writes the first epistle. It's noted in verse 9 in this text already. But what makes it unlikely in its context here is verse 13, suggesting that these very people are feasting with you. Um, So these are false teachers that are among the brothers. You mentioned it earlier that these are not outside persecutors of the church that we're talking about here at this point. So I'd lean towards either God or more directly his, his message, his word that he's sending to his people. And they're, they're rejecting that. Right. I mean, I think, you know, as as you said, the Greek word there is simply glory. So you could translate it again, going with ESV until that word, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glories, right? So the glorious ones is the way the ESV translates it, which I think lends toward thinking of it as the angels, and, and one suggestion that I, I came across in Dr. Giese's commentary, which I think is is helpful, is that, you know, if, if the glories does refer to the angels, perhaps part of the blasphemy that they're speaking then is not only the, the message that angels had brought in terms of God's word, but also particularly the angels' role in the coming judgment. Because that is, at least as you read the whole epistle of Second Peter, this matter of, of Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead is a big part of the false teaching that is happening, that there's a denial that that event's going to happen. You know, that in chapter three, there's going to be this, well, he's, he's waited for so long, he's never going to come. Well, we know the angels are involved in that second coming of our Lord. And so that perhaps that's part of the part of what's going on here, if, if glories does refer to the, the angels. But regardless of, of precisely what that glorious ones refers to, What's what's the point that it, that Peter's making here? They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're they're not even afraid of it. I think is the the key. Or more specifically, they're not afraid of God. Yeah. I mean, they yeah they, they don't have they don't have anything holding them back. 
They are very intentional in doing what they do. They don't hesitate in doing it. They're bold and willful. This is their action and their responsibility alone, which is something that as we, as you just were talking about, what is yet to come? They bear that responsibility before the Lord on judgment day. And they're bold and willful now. They have no fear of God now. But when that day comes, they will. Yeah, yeah. Now he makes the in verse eleven you get a you get a contrast. So he says in the second half of verse ten, on the one hand, these false teachers aren't afraid to speak against God and his glories or his glorious ones. On the other hand, Peter says, and, and I guess the idea here is that what the false teachers are doing is so bold and and audacious because even the angels won't pronounce a judgment. What What is that con- contrast he's making there in verse 11? So the angels, at this point, it gets back to what is their role. You know, the angels here are not going to speak judgment before the Lord. Um, so the angels have greater might and power. I don't think there's anyone among us that would deny that in this moment, right? When you see an angel show up in scripture, what's the almost the immediate first thing they always have to say to people? That's right. <laughs> Do not be afraid. Um, <laughs> because we're terrified at this very sight of an angel. They have power and they have authority granted to them by God himself. They could I mean, they could speak ill of these blasphemers. These these blasphemers deserve it in that sense, but it's not the angel's role. Their role, their function is to proclaim God's message. They are messengers. They're not in the position to judge. That's God's to do. So as these teachers are blaspheming, as they are stepping outside of their role and their authority to tear down the church, uh, rather than to build up the church, the angels aren't going to step out of their role. So there's your contrast that you see in that text. Right. I mean, it, it's kind of like the the false teachers almost a, who do you think you are? The, the angels don't even do what you're doing. Who do you think you are to step out of your role in this way? Again, I mean, and it's it's really just setting the scene for everything that's coming, this this great condemnation of false teachers, and then the the way that it comes out in their lives. So let's let's keep working our way through this text because there is quite a bit here. Uh, verse 12, more specifically again to the the sins of these false teachers. Here's the first image that we get. Peter compares these false teachers to irrational animals. What is what is Peter saying in verse 12? It's something that he's going to come right back to at the end of the text, right? At the end of the chapter, as he describes dogs and pigs, he he calls these, these sinners, these false teachers, creatures of instinct. That is, they simply do whatever their sinful nature wants to do. And we see that when we look at the animal world around us, when we we observe animal behavior, and we see them just acting. And they they don't necessarily have the thought that goes into what they're doing. Uh, so this, for really, you know, we we don't want to over over pick on on these false teachers per se. We need to remember our original orientation as sinners was the same to sin all the time. You know, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, the second chapter said, we're dead in our trespasses. If we were left to our own way, 
to figure this out, we'd be sinning all the time. So it's only by the Holy Spirit that we we don't. It's, the Spirit grants faith to us, creates faith in us, gives us that ability to repent. And then, as Paul would say in that same chapter, uh, the ability to carry out those good works that God has prepared for us to do beforehand. So these these false teachers are doing what their sinful nature wants to do. There's no repentance here. And as the, the verse wraps up talking about destruction then, they are presently seeking to destroy, but God is going to destroy them. They seek to drag God's people away from him and into death. And so God is going to pronounce that they themselves are dead. This is a, I mean, this is where the text really gets, I think, difficult to read because of the, I mean, again, the very harsh condemnation that Peter does speak against these false teachers. And I mentioned this in a previous episode that I think it is important for us to remember that there is a difference in the scriptures between the false teacher, which is what Peter's talking about here, and the falsely taught. The falsely taught are those who are deceived by what false teachers bring out. And certainly there's warning to watch out for false teachers so that you don't become a falsely taught one. And and Peter's later going to talk about the danger of being falsely taught and why this matter of false teacher, but the the harsh condemnation of being an irrational animal and just doing whatever it is that comes to mind rather than thinking about it. That is reserved for this this false teacher, which does stand in contrast to the way of the Christian. You think back to 2 Peter chapter 1, where, where Paul, not Paul, Peter, where Peter talks about how the word of God is effective in the lives of Christians. And he urges the Christians to keep these various virtues and qualities and excellencies in mind to, to pursue them with diligence, lest they fall into this kind of trap, that they would become an, an, you know, an irrational animal but what about this matter of, of blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant? I think these false teachers would have claimed to know something, but it seems that, that Peter says you don't really know what you're talking about. And at that point, that's the, the case with false teaching in general. I mean, we, th- we think we know what we're saying, but we didn't. We were wrong. Uh, so these false teachers, and it sounds like, they don't even know the truth of God, which sounds like they're not a part of the church at all. But verse 15, again, is going to clarify that for us, that they indeed are. They're, well, visibly part of the church, at least. So what exactly are they blaspheming about? Well, you mentioned the, the connection in, in chapter 3 uh, to the, the coming of the Lord in the future. So they're taking teachings of the church about which they ought to know the truth. And they're rejecting those those simple truths from God's word and, and saying something different entirely. Now, again, this is a part of a, a long discourse here from, from the Apostle Peter. So verse 13 continues, they're suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Well, now let's stop there. <laughs> suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. It sounds like Peter, you know, these false teachers, they will in fact be judged. And, and he's he's mentioned that in the previous section and he brings it up again. Don't don't be misled. These false teachers, they will be judged. In a sense, that's a 
a defense for us, for the church, for the, the faithful, as they are hearing these false teachers, not to give in to however persuasive or however tempting their words may sound. Know, know them as what they are, that they are false, and they, they will be repaid by the Lord for what they have done. And we like to hear the other side of that, right? As Jesus was the parable of the, the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Come enter into the joy of your master. Well, here it's the opposite. What they have done was not faithful. And so the Lord will re- reward them according to, to their, their deeds, their teaching. And Peter then continues to elaborate on the sins that are evident in the lives of these false teachers. In verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. What does the rest of this verse have to say? The word pleasure in the Greek is hedane, which is where we get our English word hedonism from. I don't know. How many people recognize that right off the top? But hedonism is essentially what our own culture uh, follows. Hedonism is the teaching that you you live life for the sake of pleasure. And the opposite of that, then, you also are trying to avoid pain and suffering as much as you can. And and just hearing that that simple phrasing of it, I think most people would say, yeah, that sounds like it sounds like American life in the 21st century today. So they are living their lives for themselves. Instead of working and serving others, they're living their life to seek after their own pleasure. And verse 10 and verse 14 both kind of hint at what those those things are. So verse 10 had said that they indulge in, in their lusts of their defiling passion. Verse 14 here is going to suggest again that, that adultery idea as well. So and greed is thrown into the mix for them. Yeah, those those two, both the sensuality, the passion, the lust, they came out earlier in chapter two as well. And then their motivation for greed is is quite there. What strikes me about verse 13 is that you know they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're not even trying to hide these things. Jesus in John chapter three talks about how you know men loved the darkness. They didn't want to go out into the light lest their deeds be exposed. But but these false teachers, I guess maybe the way I'd say it is they have such a, a seared conscience or maybe just a, a completely broken conscience that they're not afraid to commit these acts right there in the light. They're doing it shamelessly. Maybe that's the word to, to use. They're, they're not afraid of others seeing them for, for who they are, for what they're, they're, they're just, they're out there doing this in the daytime for anyone to see. That's how, how brazenly they've, and how far they've, they've fallen from the truth. Right. Yeah. Just how far gone that they are. And, Again, as the, the comparison to our 21st century culture, I think it fits um, that we, we see the world around us willing to revel in their pleasure in the daytime. Um, they don't even seek to hide it. They, they boast of their pride uh, day and night. Let me, let me just get this conversation started. we got a couple of minutes before the break. Something I was thinking about in, in conjunction with this text, getting ready for this conversation in the previous one yesterday the because you you've brought up how we see this in our culture today 
and and you're exactly right. You know, the the sins that Peter says are evident in the lives of these false teachers, those same sins are evident in our culture today. And this is the connection that I, I think we can make is that as we look in our world today and we see these sins, it's not simply a matter of they're sinning, they're doing what's bad, they should stop that. But Peter invites us to take it one step further and say this is a matter of false teaching, that the reason that our world looks like it does today with these sins, you know, sensuality, despising authority, the greed that's evident, the reason that these sins are so evident today is because our world's been engulfed by false teaching all over the place, that, that that's really the root cause behind it all. What do, what do you think? I, I mean, I've been toying, tossing that around in my mind, and I, I think it's, it's true, but I'm curious what you think, too. Well, we do have Paul's warning to Timothy about how in, in the times to come, the people would chase after whatever itches their ears. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the false teachings that that's speak to our sinful nature are very popular uh, and, and always have been right. Uh, going all the way back, probably we could say to the garden. Um, oh. And what, what we see here uh, is, is much like we had in verse 12 creatures of instinct as, as we just see people doing whatever they want to do. Now, what about, before we go to the break, let's just pick up this last bit of 13. It says, while they feast with you. What, what does that mean? They're right there in the church. They sit right there alongside the, the brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they're already present at that very moment. It's not like it's a warning against something that might come. Um, as I was looking in commentaries, uh, one of the ones I was looking at suggested all kinds of different isms. Uh, that this could be a reference to here, uh, as you've got Gnosticism as one of the earliest false teachings that, are, that are cost the church. Um, but there are so many, uh, so many things that, that sneak in there. And there's a warning here about the danger of these false teachings. Yeah, we're going to keep looking at that warning that Peter gives us here in Second Peter chapter 2. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I have Pastor Andrews talking about Second Peter 2. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 4th. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b through 22. We have Pastor Steve Andrews with us. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we left off here in 2 Peter chapter 2 with verse 13. The apostle continues to dig into these sins of these false teachers in verse 14. He says, They have eyes full of adultery, 
insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And then you get this exclamation, accursed children. It's like Peter's had had enough. He just keeps going and he's got to just exclaim how, how terrible this is. Uh, take us into what Peter says there in verse 14. There's so much here, right? So many little phrases. Um, I don't know, as the reader, as the hearer uh, would look at the, the verse, I think different people would have different parts of this pop at them. The thing that popped at me first was insatiable for sin. Hmm. So you've got adultery, you've got greed mentioned specifically. We know false teaching is also a sin, but they're insatiable. That means they can't be satisfied. And I think in this way, sin and our sinful nature compares very much so with the idea of addiction uh, that we're, we're pretty familiar with as a society. You know, you can't satisfy an addiction whatever the addiction is, you know, I'll, I'll just give into it a little bit here and maybe tomorrow will be better. It doesn't work that way. When you give in, it wants more. Um, they've got a whole series of books for children on that topic, right? If you, if you give a mouse a cookie, um, it's just going to want a glass of milk and so forth until you've got a whole children's book on it. You can't satisfy it. And, and our sinful nature is truly that way. You're never going to satisfy the sinful urges of your flesh. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Later, later in this text, he's going to talk about the, the freedom that these false teachers promise. And yet they're slaves of corruption, he'll say. And I think this idea of a sin that's insatiable plays right into that. What about the matter of enticing unsteady souls? Yeah, that unsteady souls, we've got that coming up also uh, more in the text. These are, are the brothers and the sisters in the church who are, we'd say probably say weaker of faith. The commentary uh, of the study Bible mentioned maybe newer converts to the faith. And one of their insatiable sins is that they, they're preying on these people. They want to, to lure them away. They want to get them to join their side of things rather than to remain faithful uh, to what the Lord would have them believe. Yeah, I mean that that's a theme that comes up here in this part of the text is that these false teachers particularly are out to get the these newer Christians, ones who perhaps don't have as great of a, a foundation or it's a, a new foundation. It's it's unsteady. I, I think of what Jesus talks about in his parable of the sower, the the second type of soil where the seed sprouts up really quickly, but then it withers. And it seems that some of those are the ones that these false teachers are going after. And and it's almost like Peter wants to tell these false teachers, why don't you pick on someone your own size? Quit quit going after these these new Christians and and praying on them. That was a good word that you used. What about again he brings up the greed. It says they have hearts trained in greed. This isn't just sort of like, oh I, I happen to want and want and want, but they're actually training themselves in greed. This is, again, uh, you know, we mentioned adultery as something of our society. Greed is, too. In a, in a sense, the capitalistic economy thrives on greed. When you think of marketing and things like that, the goal is to always teach us that what we have is not enough. You need their product in order for your life to be better. Uh, and really, that fits into this text as a whole. And we could talk about that as, as our sin in general. One of the ways we like to discuss sin is the idea that it's us turning inward on ourselves. 
So our false teachers here, rather than seeking to be great, as Jesus says, by being a slave to all, they're, again, they're in hedonism. They're seeking to pleasure themselves. They're seeking to advance themselves. And, and to be trained in it, that means that they've not been doing this briefly. This isn't new to them. This is something that they've been prepping for and doing for a long time, just as we, we are trained in it. As a, as a culture, as a people today. What about that exclamation? It, I mean, again, it's like Peter's just sort of fed up at a, for this moment for a second. He says, accursed children. What's significant about that? The part that, that stands out to me is he actually calls them children. Uh, we think of children in the New Testament, that family language. You know, you've got Jesus talking when his, his mother and brothers thought he had gone crazy and they're trying to get him out of the house and take him home. He looks around the room and he says something along the lines of, you know, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. And so family language in the New Testament tends to be a conversation about people of the faith. And you've got that here, you know, accursed and children. It's almost an oxymoron Um, for it to be accursed. We would think of as being a reference to their judgment. And so they were a part of the church and they should have remained, but now they, now they aren't, now they're out, they're apart. Yeah. And, and that sort of, that painful language is going to come up even more toward the end of this text where he talks about those who had been Christians, but have fallen away. You get a, a picture of that here, almost a, that makes that exclamation here, perhaps not so much frustration, but even a, a grieving exclamation here that that these children have now become accursed it's almost as if peter's grieving here as as i think you're going to start to see a little bit toward the end too so there's there's both going on not it's not only that certainly peter has has i would say an an anger toward these and he's he's rightly calling them out in the harshest language but he does so with a a sense of grief as well i think that 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 comes through now as the as the text continues uh, peter does what he he often does he brings up an Old Testament example. In verses 15 and 16, he invites us to consider how these false teachers, they've forsaken the right way, they've gone astray, and he says, that's like Balaam, the son of Beor. Now, this is one of those Old Testament stories that is unique. They're all unique, I suppose. But this one particularly, I think, stands out in people's minds. Uh, refresh our memories. Who is Balaam? What's he? What happened to him in the Old Testament? Yeah, unique's one word for it. Balaam's like an oddball. It's hard to figure out exactly what is going on with Balaam some of the time there. So if you want to look up Balaam here, you're you're looking at Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Balaam is, he's not an Israelite. I think we learn in the text that he's from Mesopotamia. Um, yet he's able to speak to God. He He's a practicer of divination which is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. And yet God chooses to pour out his spirit upon Balaam so that he can work through Balaam anyway. Um, And so the the account that you get is that the king of Moab at the time, Balak, wants to destroy Israel. He wants to fight back against them. He's afraid of them. And so he hires Balaam to come to look at the people of God and to curse them in a way almost as though he wants to weaken them so that he'll be able to overcome them in battle. God tells Balaam not to. But Balaam goes to Balak anyway, 
and that's where you get that whole account of the donkey, um, which I think is probably the part of the, the Old Testament story most people remember, that God worked through a donkey to speak his word and rebuke this false teacher in particular. But then Balaam goes to Balak. He remains with Balak. He continues to hear the temptations of Balak as Balak is offering to pay him and and do all kinds of things. The way that Joshua ends up phrasing it, uh, sorry, Moses ends up phrasing it in the book of Numbers, Balaam sought to curse them, but God wouldn't do it. Instead, God used Balaam to bless them. So, yeah, what ultimately becomes of Balaam, again, not a prophet of God, is that he is going to get struck down by God's people. So later on, uh, when Moses is told by God to avenge Israel against the Midianites, Balaam dies in that conflict because he had convinced the people of God to spare the people of Midian from God's judgment and God's wrath. Yeah, so he, again, this is who Peter brings up, this account of Balaam. He specifically mentions that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. You've got the idea of greed that comes up from the false teachers. And also that Balaam was rebuked uh, by this speechless donkey who, who restrained the prophet's madness, which I think ties into that picture that Peter gave us in verse 12 of the irrational animal. Here in the, in the case of Balaam, the, the donkey proves himself to be wiser than the one riding the donkey. And, and I think you, know, you have that similar sort of rebuke inherent there, again, with that irrational animal coming up in verse 12. You have the idea coming up here again in 15 and 16. And as you mentioned, it's going to come up again toward the end of our text. Any more there on how Peter makes use of Balaam as the example? No, and just the idea here that a rebuke of a false teacher. So that's what we're seeing Peter do with these false teachers. That's right. That's right. And he continues again. It, you get another image here. Verse 17 brings up waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Two, it seems, related images. What do those images uh, communicate? Well, they're both water images. So you think of a spring of water. A spring is it's a, a thing of, of giving life. It's supporting of life. When there's water in it, when there's no water in it, though, it doesn't do that. It's, you know, you, you like you're, you've been out in a, uh, I'll use the oasis picture. You're out in the desert and you find that oasis and you're so happy. Oh, you've come across water. You're going to be okay. But it turns out the oasis was just as empty as the rest of the desert. So the spring is supposed to be there. It's supposed to be beneficial, but here it's empty. And so the false teachers are this way. They are teachers, so they ought to be teaching God's word. They ought to be teaching things that are of benefit to his church. But instead, when you go to them, it's not water that you get. It's not something supportive. It's not something beneficial that you receive. But instead, the opposite. You're, you're falsely lured to this place. That they are mist driven by a storm is a bit of a different picture in my mind. They're not firm. You know, so you've got the mist and you think of just those little tiny water droplets that are in the air and a storm has heavy winds with it and they just get blown around every which way. Um, they're not able to stand firmly. They're not rooted in one place. 
Yeah, maybe in in both cases we could say that it it's it's deceptive. You know, you you go to a spring but there's no water. You've got a mist but it's just driven away and neither one delivers on what is being promised by it being there. And and of course the theme of water, you know, this stands in what what's given here in 2 Peter stands in contrast to the word of God being the living water or in in uh, in First Peter, you know, he he talked about the word of God as being that nourishment, that spiritual milk. Here, are these false teachers they they make these claims, but they can't deliver on them. And so, then again, very strong words here for what awaits. The apostle says, "For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved." Make make no mistake about it. Peter says, "Condemnation is coming for these false teachers." Take us into that last part of seventeen. It's a bit of a different image than we're used to hearing in Scripture. You know, when we think of hell in the in the New Testament, we tend to have that fiery image, uh, the lake of fire kind of reference. But this is just a very different view. So it has been reserved. God has reserved a space for them, not in his paradise, but in hell. It is good to remember that hell was not prepared for people, but for the devil and his angels. But nonetheless, we've got this picture, gloom and darkness. Those two fit together pretty well, I think, as we we would think of gloom and sorrow, sadness, um, and dark times. Um, You've got then the picture of what what hell is going to be like. I guess one of the ways that you sometimes hear hear it discussed is that hell, hell is separation from God. And God is the source of all things, of all good things. So if you're separated from God, you're separated from all that is good. So gloom of utter darkness, very fitting with that kind of a picture. Yeah, and it stands in contrast to the way Peter described the word of God back in the first chapter. He talked about the word of God being a lamp shining in a dark place. Here is the here is the lamp that ought to shine, and these false teachers have cut themselves completely off from that light because they they refuse to repent. Again, the the picture just continues to grow. Verses eighteen and nineteen, they're speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. This this brings in some of those things we've mentioned already. We get the the enticing the new Christians, it sounds like, and the offering of freedom that in the end is is only slavery. Right. So a lot of repetition in this section. Uh, we've got these new converts to the faith. They've been fleeing from their p- former pagan beliefs, but they're still they're still weak to them. They're still prone to them. This is why I think as Paul is addressing the, the idea of, you know, what are the qualifications for being a pastor? One of the qualifications is that they cannot be new to the faith. And so we've got these these new Christians whose faith just is not that firmly rooted yet. They need nourishment, and these are giving them the opposite. They're going after these and seeking to pounce on that opportunity to deceive them by appealing to the desires of the sinful flesh. I mean, if you're if you if greed is something that you struggle with, and you see these guys out there in the middle of the day, reveling in the daytime enjoying their greed and getting to live how they want to live, that's dangerous. Or, you know, again, lust is the example used in the text already. If they're reveling in that in the daytime and that's something you struggle with, that's going to be appealing to you 
uh, and and that can tear you down. So they're they're boasting in these things, uh, and, and they're harming the church in these things. Now, what about verse nineteen? I think this is an important one to to pick up. That these false teachers they promise freedom, but they're actually slaves of corruption. And then the almost a proverbial sort of statement for whatever over overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. What is Peter saying here? You tied into this very well earlier, and you know they're they're promising freedom, but it is slavery instead. We've got this picture, and I think as Americans, we resonate with this picture very well, that we can somehow be free to do whatever we want to do, that we're slaves to no one, which is a response Jesus heard from the Jews at one point in his ministry. But the scriptures teach us pretty opposite, that we're, we are a slave of one master or another. And as sinners, you know, in our original sin, we are slaves to sin. And that's what these guys are these false teachers, they're promising freedom. Look, you can revel in the daytime just like we are, whatever that looked like. I don't know that I want to know, but they, they've they promised that to the other Christians. But what it really is, is a lawlessness. And now they become slaves to that lawlessness. They become slaves to those insatiable sins of theirs, thinking it's okay to do them. It's okay to revel in these things. And they just they just end up drowning in it. They just have to keep doing it more and more and more, and it never, it never fills them. And so, yeah, whatever whatever overcomes you, that is what you are a slave to. And so, instead of being a slave of Christ or a slave of God, uh, which Romans six kind of language, they're slaves to the desires of their own sinful selves. And and that's really the only option that's left open to them. Thinking back to the very beginning of this chapter in verse 2, where Peter says that these false teachers have even denied the master who bought them. When you deny the Lord who shed his blood to pay the price to redeem you, when you refuse him as your master, you're still left with a master, as you said. You're, you're going to be under a master one way or another, and that's you know, Romans 6 is a fantastic passage to bring up in that regard. You're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. Which one's it going to be? And and these false teachers have denied the master who bought them, the one who paid the price to redeem them from sin, death, and the devil. And so all that's left is for them to live in this slavery to corruption. They may think they're free, but they're only fooling themselves. And, and Peter goes on with the rest of the text, as verses 20 through 22, I think, really go together in what they're saying, just the, the devastating consequences for the false teachers themselves. What, what does this mean for them? And this is pretty, pretty striking language that he uses. He says in verse 20, if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What, is, what does that mean? This is one of those difficult sections, difficult passages in the New Testament, and it's not alone in this. What, yeah, what does it mean that the last state becomes worse for them than the first? And for for the hearer, again, I, I would hope that 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 phrase sounded familiar for you today. Jesus used that language himself back in chapter twelve of Matthew's gospel, um, as he's talking about the person who's been set free from demon possession. Uh, so another kind of slavery, I guess you could say. And and it's not been replaced by anything. So that emptiness, that that void in their in their self was not filled with Christ. 
And so being left open, they're attacked and overcome again. But as Jesus phrased it, not that time by one demon, he went and found other demons to join him in that in that person. So the last state of that person is then worse than the first. I, we, we can see that, right? Uh, I would not that I want to have one demon possess me, but one demon possessing me would be, I think, better than seven. Um, that sounds awful. And so we have that picture being shared with us here in regards to the, the, the old faith of these false teachers, having once tasted what is good, having once known Jesus Christ, and then being overcome again by their sinful self, their slavery of corruption. They're worse off now than they were before. Verse 21 seems to play right into that then. He says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the Holy Commandment delivered to them. If, if I'm understanding him right, he's saying it would have been better that they'd never been Christian at all than to have been a Christian and then turned away from it in this bold and willful way. Right, which is the puzzle for us to hear. Um, as As Christians, we think that faithfulness to the Lord's word means we get to go to be with him in paradise. And if we've rejected him, we get to go, we end up going to hell. And there are verses like this one that make it sound like those things have, have levels to them. Like there's, there is a worse punishment somehow for some than for others. And this isn't the only one that speaks this way. Again, to take you back to Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus pronounces woes over Chorazin and Bethsaida um, because they have seen the miracles of Christ. They've heard the teachings of Christ, and yet they have still rejected him. And Jesus says it will be better, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than it is for those cities. And I don't think there's anybody that reads that text and imagines that Sodom is going to have like a nice day on the day of judgment. So that there is something deeper to this, that there is a perhaps a harsher punishment in store is the way that the text reads. Hmm. Right. And, and implicit in that I think is, is a warning for us to hold on to what we've been given. You know, what, I mean, again, in a, in a, in a warning way, but an encouragement then for us as Christians, hold on to that truth, lest, lest judgment fall upon us and, and we fall away. Let's, we've got about three minutes here. I want to make sure we cover that last verse, this true proverb, the dog returns to its vomit, the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. How does Peter use this to wrap this section of the text up? The dog references Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Um, the pig reference is not right there in the same spot. And I didn't see it just looking around briefly. Um, but it's a picture, again, of these false teachers who are, as we saw back, I think, verse 12, that they are they are just like creatures driven by instinct. Um, how many of us have seen the dog do this very thing? You know, the dog, the dog vomits, it throws up because it, it ate something it shouldn't have, something that made it feel sick or something that made its stomach uneasy. So it throws up instinctually in order that it feels better. But what does it do after that? Well, that pile of vomit on the floor starts to look appealing. Because again, creature of instinct, dogs will eat whatever they can. So it sees that thing and it says, yeah, I'll eat that. And they go right back to the same place that they were before. 
And I think the image of the pig is easy enough for us to see the same thing, right? The filthy pig, you wash them clean. What do they do? They just go right back to the mud pit and they roll around again and they're filthy again. In our sinfulness, we're just like this. You know, we return to our sin again and again. Um, and this is a, a bit of a, an encouragement, well, a warning for us to consider as, as ourselves too, and not just the false teachers. We come to church on Sunday morning, we hear that pronouncement that our sins are forgiven. And we do. We leave church and we go right back to the same things we were, were messing around with before, the same sins that we, we are tempted by. And, and so we, we need to remember, too, um, not to cast judgment on these false teachers ourselves, but to, to take this as a, a warning for us as the church from Peter to truly trust in, in what the Lord gives, as you were saying, to the gifts that he's given to us, uh, that we know that the forgiveness of, of the Lord is ours. Hmm. With just about a minute here, Pastor Andrews, again, this has been a really difficult text. A lot of words of condemnation and law, which are most needed. I mean, we, we need to have this text in the scriptures, lest we think that false teaching is somehow okay. It's not, and it needs this kind of condemnation. But, but reading through these as Christians, how do we take them? How do we see in this text, or in addition to this text, how does a text like this point us toward the truth through the gospel of Jesus Christ? the same warning that Peter is issuing to the churches of Asia Minor in the first century is is still standing for us today. There are false teachers in the church yet now, and they sit with us. They dine with us in our churches, in our homes. And so the, the encouragement for us as the church is to be discerning, to know and to study God's word, to learn what is true and what is not, so that when these false teachers arise among us, we are not hoodwinked, uh, we're not enticed by the passions of the flesh, and instead we can remain faithful to his word. And on the other side of this, that we would then have that strength as the Christian church to encourage the false teachers to repent, whether it's by our direct words to them or by our prayers for them, that the Holy Spirit would continue to work repentance or would work repentance anew uh, in their hearts. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us today with 2 Peter 2, verses 10b through 22. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about 2 Peter or Jude, which is coming up next in this series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.